is that? We have creation and then corruption. Corruption. We have the fall. Then, about 1,650 years ago, or then 1,650 years go by from corruption, and around 2,350 B.C., we run into our third C, which is what? Catastrophe. We're talking about the flood. And that's what we've talked about for the last five weeks. We've been talking about the catastrophe of the worldwide flood. Last week, I presented to you a creationist model for explaining what happened to the world during the flood. That model is called catastrophic plate tectonics. In one sentence, what does this scientific model say physically caused the flood? What is catastrophic plate tectonics? Okay, yes, water did indeed cause a flood, but what caused the water? Right, so it's all about the movement of the plates. Rapid movement of the Earth's crust, or rapid movement of the plates on the crust, is what caused the flood, according to this model. And we talked about all the different ways about how that happened last week. Now, there are other creationist models for explaining the flood that use, for example, a global canopy of water around the Earth that fell, or massive underground water reservoirs that came up. But the catastrophic plate tectonics model makes the best sense with what we know about the Earth and its processes uh, today. Now, this model, though, like all scientific models, will surely be revised or even replaced as more scientific data becomes available and undergoes scrutiny. Make no mistake, it is an immense challenge to try and understand the Earth's most ancient history. In fact, if it weren't for the eyewitness account of the Bible, we couldn't even attempt to understand the Earth's ancient history. We would have no idea how the physical conditions of the world were alike or different to what they are today, or how people were alike or different to what they are today. But because we have the Bible, we can begin to make sense of what surviving ancient data we have. We still might might not be able to understand or explain everything, but we have a much better chance, or we have a much better foundation for doing so than those who use a made-up history of the past or those who assume a history of the earth that actually contradicts the history given to us in the Bible. Before we start today's lesson, though, in earnest, I'd like to take time to make two other comments about last week's lesson. First one's kind of minor, but at one point in last week's lesson, I asked what would happen to a ball of aluminum foil if you drop it in water. Now, Some people said sink, some people said flow, and I told you it would sink. But the real answer is, it depends. The ball will sink or float, depending on how tightly you compress the ball. If you, go, if you crumple it only loosely, then the density is still less than the water's density, and it will float. But if you crumple it really hard, then the ball's density will be more than water, and it will sink. So what I told you is true from a certain point of view. But hopefully that clears up some confusion. The other thing I wanted to mention, Danielle asked a good question about human fossils. Why don't we find a lot of human fossils as a result of the flood? Well, I went back to see what Answers in Genesis says in regarding human fossils, and the answer has a lot to do with the nature of the fossil record. You can look up the specific statistics on Answers in Genesis' website, but here's the basic answer. Most fossils that we, t- that we find today are shallow marine organisms, things like clams or trilobites or things like that, creatures that would be most easily buried in the flood. Vertebrates, especially mammals, are extremely rare in the fossil record. We don't find any of those in the flood rocks. And the only ones that we do find come from rocks that would have to be formed after the flood. In other words, to answer why we don't find any human fossils from the flood, it's because we don't find any animal fossils from the flood, except those that be most easily buried and preserved in the flood, shallow marine organisms, and some fish. It appears that land creatures died, perished in ways that did not lend themselves to fossilization during the flood. One other thing to tie up last week. I told you that we had until today to memorize our verse. So I want to recite that now, but I'll do it tag team fashion. And What I mean is this. One person will say a phrase, and then the next person will say the next phrase in the verse, and then another person the next phrase until we get to the end of the verse. That way we can all participate and not feel like we're just mumbling together. 
So I'll start with the verse reference and the first phrase, and then I'll hopefully one of you will pick up on the next phrase. So the verse reference is 2 Peter 2.5. And God did not spare the ancient world. What's the next phrase? But save Noah. Who's got the next one? One of eight people? What's next? A preacher of righteousness. And then two more phrases. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. That's 2 Peter 2.5. So say that all together. And God did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now remember, that's a great verse. New Testament confirming the historicity of the flood. Global flood. We have a new memory verse today. We'll get to that at the end of the class. Now, as I said, we've worked through the first three seven C's. Now we're going to talk, to, talk about our fourth C, which is confusion at Babel. Confusion. Now, about how many years after the flood did construction at Babel take place? About 100 years, a little more than 100 years. Dispersion at Babel took place around 2240 B.C., 2240 B.C. We'll talk a little bit later about how we arrive at that date. Now, Babel being so close to the flood may be a little surprising to you because the flood was obviously very devastating, a serious judgment from God. How could man so soon again rebel against God? I mean, Noah and Shem were still alive. But God himself did say when Noah came out of the ark, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's Genesis 8.21. We're going to see again in today's lesson, that sin is so ruinous to our race that even after a cataclysmic, sin-judging flood, man again will choose to rebel. As you know, man's activity at Babel and God's response to that activity had a profound impact on the world and on all of us, descendants from those people. And if we want to have a good foundation for the disciplines of history, anthropology, or sociology, we must understand what happened at Babel. So that's why we're taking time to discuss it today. We'll take this week and next week to talk about the dispersion that took place at Babel. Specifically today, here's what we want to accomplish. Examine the historical account given to us in Genesis 11, 1-9. Identify the sins or sins at Babel that led to God's judgment. Explain why mankind scattered as a result of Babel discuss when this event happened and how we can know that, and then describe how memories of Babel exist actually all over our world today. It's a lot to do in this lesson, so won't have as much time, probably no time for questions or comments. Maybe we'll have some at the end, so just hang on to them, write them down. But let's pray before we go on. Lord God, I pray, I pray God that you would put yourself on display now, that we would see your great power, that we would see the folly of man and his opposition to you. Lord, that you would show yourself glorious, show your son to be glorious. And thank you, God. We thank you that you brought us into your son. Give me the ability to explain this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's start by looking at God's brief but very informative record of the Babel event. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 11, 1-9. Just to fill you in on what happened between where we last read the scriptures and what we're going to read today, in between the flood account and Babel, we see a curse given, a prophetic curse given by Noah to Ham's descendant, Canaan. That's in chapter 9. In chapter 10, we get a genealogy describing the descendants of Noah's three sons and a little bit of information about where they ended up settling. But the question arises, why did Noah's sons go different directions across the earth? Well, chapter 11 is going to explain. So let's read those first nine verses in chapter 11. Verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about, as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower 
whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Okay, as always, let's start with some observations of this text. At this point in the past, and according to the passage, according to the passage, how many languages were spoken on earth? Just one. And how many dialects of that language? There's only one dialect. There's only the, the original. Because notice the text says that they all spoke the same words. And this is very different from what we have today. Have you ever stumbled over the differences between English dialects? Say, American English and British English? We speak the same language, but we don't have the same words. Or sometimes we don't have the same pronunciation of words. For example, the Brits don't call it a TV, but a what? A telly. And the Brits don't call it a garage, but a what? Garage. It's a garage. Now, such differences can lead to misunderstanding and frustration, and sometimes humor. But man, at this time, they used only one language and one vocabulary. The text says the people traveled east, though some translations say that they traveled from the east. But we can be more specific. From what site, what original site, would people be traveling from? They would be from the mountains of Ararat. And why? That's where the ark landed, according to earlier chapters of Genesis. The ark landed in the mountains of Ararat. But notice the phrase from Genesis 8-4 is mountains, plural. And it could be any mountain in the region of Ararat, in the ancient kingdom of Urartu. You can see that in these pictures here. Well, maybe not the left one so much. But Mount Ararat on the eastern side of Turkey, next to Armenia. And you can see roughly the area of the ancient kingdom of Urartu. That would be the, the mountain range of Ararat. There are some geological reasons to say that Mount Ararat, the one that we know as Mount Ararat today, would not be the mountain that the, the ark landed on because Mount Ararat was probably an active volcano during that time. So probably not that particular mountain, but somewhere within that mountain range. Regardless, the ark... And the only surviving people came from this mountain range, and they began to have children, and this group journeyed east, or from the east, to the land of Shinar. Well, where's Shinar? We actually get some great help from the Bible in this, because there's a number of times that this name is used in the Bible. The Hebrews would have recognized this location, the plains of Shinar, and we can too, with just a little bit of cross-referencing. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Okay, so according to that passage, where must Shinar be? It must be in Babylon. It must be in the region of Babylon. Because that must be where the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God would be, as the king of Babylon. And indeed, most Bible interpreters see the land of Shinar as the plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So just to show you on a map where that would be, you see Babylon here in the lower right section of this shaded area. I don't know if you can see it that well, but it's the the big circle there between the two rivers. So that would be where Babylon is. So as the human race is multiplying, the people migrate south and east, or, at least, or yeah, either from the east or to the east, to the plains of Shinar. And it would be on this plain on which the future kingdom of Babylon would rise. And these people, as they migrate, they suddenly get the urge to build. And what do they want to build? They want to build a tower and a 
city, a city and a tower. Now, we don't hear much about the city, but how is the tower described? Right, it's tall tower. It, specifically, it says that with a top that will reach into heaven. Now, if you're using the NASB, you, it uses that language, but notice the words will reach. They're probably italicized in your Bibles. And what does that indicate? They're not there in the original language, but they're given to us so that we can get the sense of the original language. Literally, it would be a tower with a top into heaven or a top in the heavens, a tall structure whose summit reaches into the heavens. Now, what might this have looked like? What did the Tower of Babel look like? We can't say for sure. But we can take a look at other ancient towers in the Mesopotamia area to get an idea. But these tall structures in Mesopotamia and Babylon, they weren't called towers. They went by another name. It starts with a Z. Ziggurats. Ziggurats. I'll show you a picture. Some pictures of a ziggurat. So there's a, an artist representation of a rather large ziggurat, and there's actually a foundation of a surviving ziggurat, the great ziggurat of Ur in Iraq. Ziggurats were often used as religious structures. It was thought because these buildings extended high into the heavens that the gods could therefore meet with men there. The ziggurats were like ladders for the gods to reach the earth and for men to reach the gods. So the Tower of Babel may have been a large ziggurat, a super ziggurat, the tallest and most skillful ziggurat that man could produce. Now what construction materials were the people at Babel using? We've got brick, baked bricks, and slime in some translations, or tar, or bitumen. So they use for mortar. Now, what reasons do the people give for wanting to build these things? There are two. What are the reasons? They want to make a name for themselves. And what's the other reason? So they won't be scattered. They want to make a name for themselves and prevent themselves from being scattered. Now, what does God observe when he takes special notice of their work? He says something that's kind of remarkable. What does God notice? Yeah, Eric. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty amazing statement from God. He says, look, these people all have one language. This is what they've started to do. Nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Their unity made them powerful to accomplish whatever they set out to do. So God then decides to confuse man's language so that the people will not understand each other. And notice the phrasing God uses in verse 7. How is it similar to what appears earlier in the passage? We have a repetition of a certain phrase. Come, let us, right? The people were saying to one another, come, let us bake bricks. Come, let us build. But God says, come, let us. God's united purpose would prove to be much stronger than man's united purpose. God confuses the language, and what are the results? There are a couple results of that happening. What's one? Okay, they can't understand each other. What else is the result? The people scatter. They separate from one another. What else? They stop building the city. And there's one other result. A little more indirect. The place gets a name, right? The place gets a name. It's called Babel. Oh, why is it called Babel? The text tells us because God confused the languages there. But... Anytime you see an explanation like this in the Old Testament, you can bet if something, if you get the name and then an explanation for the name, you can bet the name itself has to do with that explanation. And Babel in Hebrew, maybe your study Bible tells you, means what? Confusion. Babel means confusion. The name is apparently associated with the primitive Hebrew verb balal, meaning to mix, confound, or overflow. And by the way, 
Every time the word Babylon appears in your Old Testament Bible translation, it's actually the same word used here. It's Babel, just Babel. So whenever you, that passage that we read from Daniel, where it refers to the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, it's actually King Nebuchadnezzar of Babel. It's the same word. The Hebrews would have connected this city and its tower with the later city and the kingdom of the same name because they were called the same thing. One other interesting note, in Akkadian, that is an ancient Babylonian language, Babalu means gate of God. And we get the name Babylon from the Greeks who probably transliterated the plural of the Akkadian term, Babylonian, which means gate of the gods. So that's where we get Babylon from. We spent some time observing. Let's ask some interpretive questions now. What is the root sin on display in this passage? It's rebellion. But what kind of rebellion? Yeah. Right. Worshipping themselves. Idolatry to oneself. We have another name for that. Pride, right? The sin that's clearly on display here is pride. And it almost is childish, right? Let us make for ourselves a name. Let's show how great we are. Let us build a monument to us. Let's cause all people who are to come, and even the angels in heaven, to behold our glory. As for God, who is God? We don't need him. Look at how powerful we are. How intelligent we are. Look what we can do. We may be weak by ourselves or weak in small groups, but how mighty we become when we all work together, each of us excelling in different areas, but united in one purpose. Let us then make our mark in the universe. Let all creation see our great city and its tower and give us glory. This is the opposite of David and Solomon, right? They were also builders. They wanted to build a great building, but for the Lord's honor, not their own. For the Lord's name, not their own name. And they even recognized that all of their skill, power, glory, wisdom was given to them by God. But these men at Babel, our forefathers, the very descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they did not give God his due, but sought to steal his glory. And it's silly, right? God so easily unravels it all. Where is your power, O man? Where is your wisdom? Where is your glory? You cannot even understand each other anymore. And I did that to you by a simple word of judgment. God will not give his rightly deserved glory to another. Yet pride is the continual sin of man, is it not? Our sinful natures crave for our own intrinsic value to be affirmed and celebrated. We want people to see how much we deserve love, wealth, honor, power. And we get depressed or angry when they don't. After all, we deserve it. Why am I being denied these things that I deserve? I'm great. We even get angry at God for not giving us what we think we deserve. Or we fall into self-pity. Oh, I guess God's not going to do this for me. He really should, but I'm just going to have to suffer. We even use spirituality as an avenue for our lust for self-exaltation. And this was evident in the Pharisees of Jesus' time, was it not? And also in the Corinthian church. Everyone, look at me. I'm doing a good deed. Or look at me. Look at the spiritual gifts I have. Instead of, everyone, instead of saying, everyone, look at God. He has accomplished this great work in me. Because of pride, even God's gospel can be mutated to say, you are so great, O oh man, that God is enamored with you and wants to save you and bless you. Instead of saying, God is so great, that you ought to be enamored with him, obedient to him, and grateful for him. So the pride of Babel, which looks so silly to us, it's still with us. It's part of 
It's part of humanity. Now, can we also say that man in his pride was also being directly disobedient to God by refusing to scatter across the earth? After all, as part of their reasoning here in this passage, the men do say, lest we be scattered across the earth. Let's build a city in this tower, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered across the earth. Are they being directly disobedient to God's command to scatter? Well, those who say yes, and Answers in Genesis is one of those groups, they point to the commands given to Noah in chapter 9 for support. Just to remind you of some of those things, God says to Noah in Genesis 9.1, or actually Genesis 9.1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. We do see those verses. But in each case, the filling of the earth is always attached to doing what? Multiplying. Multiplying. Having children. In these verses, God never specifically commands the people to spread out. Rather, it's assumed that as they have more children, they will spread out. They're going to want more room. Like Abram said to Lot, they are going to say to each other, the land cannot sustain both of us. Let us separate from one another. If God was commanding them to artificially spread out, how would they know where there were too many people in one area? It's not as if God has a certain quota system in which he says, whoa, a thousand people is way too much for this area. Move along now. I mean, really, how much is too much? And how would they know? I am willing to hear more arguments for why the people had to purposefully spread out. But for now, I'm hesitant to say that the people were specifically disobeying God by not spreading out. I don't think that the statements in chapter 9 are specific enough to use those commands as support. But the people of Babel clearly feared spreading out. Why? Well, I believe it's for a different reason. It's because scattering would diminish their power. It would diminish their self-sufficiency. Consequently, it would diminish their glory. Because think about it. These men and women were all about exalting themselves and what they can do. But if everyone splits, well, then maybe you don't have that skilled metal worker part of the city anymore. He was going to make all the statues. Or maybe you don't have that excellent scribe anymore who was going to write all the city laws. Because really, sticking together, building a city, even building a tall tower, these are not sinful acts in and of themselves, are they? No, it's the reason that man sought to do these things that was the issue. Man did all of this to glorify himself in spite of God. And God would not leave man unchecked. God also, as a judgment, gave sinful man the very thing he feared. He scattered man. He took away the source of man's power, man's unity, and he spread him out. He spread people out from one another. But how exactly did that work? Why would everybody suddenly just move away from one another so they speak different languages? Why would they want to move away? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's central to it, right? That's a good, good answer, Bill. If they can't understand each other, then it's hard to trust those other people. I mean, even today, when groups of people don't speak the same language, what do they tend to do? Yeah, they, they often mistrust and fight, but they keep themselves separate. They separate from one another. It can be frustrating and awkward to try to communicate with someone who doesn't know your language. It can also be frightening. Imagine a bunch of people with weapons begin to shout at you in another language. You have no idea what they're saying, but are you going to want to live near those people? No, you're going to want to put some distance between you. People, therefore, who spoke the same language, and the units may have been as small as a single family, as a result of Babel, they separated from one another. They separated from those who didn't speak their same language. 
And as these families moved into new areas, their descendants spread out on the land. And as the generations passed, the people moved further and further apart. And as they did so, their languages changed. Some languages, some languages mixed with other languages. Other languages simplified or acquired new characteristics. And therefore, because the languages changed again, the people were therefore going to separate again. And the process of spreading out continued. New groups of people were continually forming because new languages were continually forming, or new forms of languages were continually forming. And in this way, the people spread out on the earth. And with these languages came separate ways of thinking, separate customs, separate legends. What emerges from these people groups, these different groups of people, is whole separate cultures and separate civilizations. What this means is that the world civilizations, even the most ancient ones that we can think of, they don't go back further than Babel. They don't go back further than 2240 BC. Nothing from pre-flood man appears to have survived. The only evidence of civilization that we have yet uncovered is after man's language and culture had separated. We see things like the ancient Chinese, the ancient Egyptians, or the ancient Babylonians. That's after Babel. Now, immediately, some secular historian will stand up and say, wait a second, we know that the pyramids in Egypt were built in 2600 BC, and the civilization had been founded for many centuries before that. How do we react to such a statement? Why doesn't it make sense? Or why won't we... Just accept that. Right. 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 So, because of the timeline given to us in the Bible, and because we know that the flood totally upheaved the earth and wiped out man and appears to have eliminated traces of what civilization appeared before that time, we just say... Well, I can't accept what you're saying. I can't accept the claim that you're making. This is not the approach of many Christians. Many Christians and Christian leaders will say, oh, well, I guess you're right. 2600 BC, I can't argue with that. Let me see if I can reinterpret the timeline of Genesis and make it conform to what you found. But we need to stand on the trustworthy word. And we can do this. Because remember, none of us were there in the past. Not the historians, not the archaeologists. None of us were there, and we do not have access to all of the past data, which means we have to interpret the data we have using assumptions. And as we've seen, when you don't start with the Bible in your interpretations of the past, you're going to make wrong assumptions. You're going to make wrong assumptions. We must stand on what is plain in the Bible, and the timeline of the flood and of and of Babel, as we'll see, is plain in the Bible. And it's not really hard to explain historical, seeming historical discrepancies. They say, well, the periods are obviously older than Babel. Well, in the case of dating Egypt and the pyramids, today's historians partly rely on ancient Egyptian historians who wrote about their own civilization. But those ancient Egyptians, they probably exaggerated the ancientness of their own civilization and the length of their various dynasties. Why would they do that? Exactly. It's in order to make their civilization seem more majestic, more legitimate. This actually is apparently what many ancient civilizations did. They claim, for example, that their empire had been around for tens of thousands of years, or that their first kings were demigods who ruled for more than a thousand years each. Don't simply accept those claims, do we? It's actually funny, in the early church, you know, that we've talked about church history, it's actually a subject that comes up with these apologists. They'll talk about how Judaism is actually the most ancient religion and how the other pagan religions are not more ancient. It's that same idea. The more ancient you are, the more legitimate you are. So these historians, these Egyptian historians, they would have had a clear reason for bias. And there are other reasons, too. You can find more about that specifically on the Answers in Genesis website. To be sure, it's difficult to navigate through historians' biases and the fragments of data we have 
from the past to discover what's actually true. But we have something that will greatly help us in all of that. The scriptures. Unlike the histories written by mere men, the Bible is always trustworthy. And as Jesus says, it cannot be broken. So when some secular archaeologist, scientist, or historian wants to say, oh, we can prove that the Bible's historical details are not accurate, remember that they are interpreting history according to faulty assumptions. They will be inclined to disbelieve the Bible and believe versions of history that fit with their worldview, likely an evolutionary or modernist worldview. And that worldview always believes that man advances slowly, socially, politically, economically, theologically, etc. He advances slowly in those areas over time. Of course, then there's the various archaeological finds that have vindicated the different claims, the historical claims of the Bible, but we don't have time to talk about those today. That'll have to be another time. So to get back to my original point, the process we see starting at Babel and playing out for the rest of history is a continual mixture and separation of cultures. Mixing, separating, mixing, separating. The cultures mix and separate, the languages mix and separate, the peoples, people groups mix and separate. And because of this process, we also see over time that people groups begin to look different from one another. Each people group begins to acquire distinct physical characteristics, like hair color, skin tone, or facial structure. We'll talk more next week about how that happened, why that happened, because that's another result of Babel. But certainly we see the people groups, as a result of these changing languages, they separate. But can we get a good idea of when this took place? I said that we can, but how? Well, it's because of the details that Moses gives us in the surrounding chapters. Turn to Genesis 10 for a moment. Let's look at verses 21 to 25 get some useful information that helps us date Babel. This is the section that describes Shem descendants. And starting from verse 21, we read this. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. We'll stop there. Now, you've got to love when a biblical author supplies a little intriguing detail in the middle of a genealogy. Here, we see a Peleg, whose name means division, in his days the earth was divided. What's that about? What exactly does that mean? Now, some think that the division referred to here is the division of the continents. However, according to what we understand scientifically, what happens to the Earth if the continents move rapidly? It's catastrophic plate tectonics. In other words, a worldwide flood. We already saw that God swore after the flood not to flood the world in the same way again. So it would be strange for God to make that promise and then divide the continents in what, in what would presumably cause a worldwide flood. So probably not the continental division here. The division more likely in mind is the division presented in the context. That is, the separation of the peoples at Babel. It occurred during the days of Peleg. And that's exactly what's discussed in chapter 11. Now, how many generations is Peleg after Shem? How many generations after Shem? I know you have to wade through those names a little bit. Well, I'll give you the, the descendants in between. After Shem, Arpachshad. After Arpachshad, Shelah. After, Eber, or after Shelah, Eber. And after Eber, Peleg. So between Shem and Peleg, how many people? Yeah, it's four. Peleg would be the fourth one after Shem. So this means that Babel 
the confusion and dispersion at Babel must have happened within four generations of Shem after the flood. By the way, linguistic side note, from Shem, the name Shem, we get the terms Semite and Semitic. And from Eber, we get what term? Hebrew. Both of these have become designators to the people of Israel. So we see that Babel, we see Babel taking place in Peleg's days, and we see that his name means division, and that it was four generations from Shem. But we can even get a clearer date from the end of chapter 11, because Moses goes more in depth into Shem's line. So let's look back again at chapter 11, starting in verse 10. Here, you may remember, we have a chronogenealogy a genealogy that also gives us the length of days of each descendant and when precisely each descendant was born. Look at verses 10 to 16. We won't read those, but we see again the five generations of Shem to Peleg. Now how could we use this information here to determine how many years after the flood went by before the division at Babel? We need to add something up. What do we add up? That's right. Right. Thank you, Bill. As we've said, there are, there's not a good reason to infer gaps in these genealogies. So all you have to do to determine how much time went by is to, is to add up the years between each descendant being fathered. So let's do that. We start with Arpachshad, said to be born from Shem two years after the flood. A little bit of details here, though. Noah was 500 when he had Shem and, Sh- and 600 when the flood began. So Shem must have been 100 when the flood began. So this phrase here, two years after the flood, in verse, uh, verse 10, that Arpachshad, he had the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood, that must refer to the beginning of the flood. And the flood lasted a little over a year. So probably another year went by before Shem began Arpachshad at the age of 102. So between Arpachshad and the flood was one year. The rest of the dates are easier. How many years between Arpachshad and Shelah? 35 years. How many years between Shelah and Eber? 30 years. How many years between Eber and Peleg? What, what is it? 34 years. Add those all together and we get 110 years. 110 years. So, Babel took place around 110 years after the flood. Now, was it exactly 110 years? Might be a little hard to say for sure because chapter 10 does say that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. That could be any time during his life. However, Peleg's name means division. So presumably, the division happened very early in his life. Otherwise, why would he have been named thus? Why would Eber have named him thus? So, we see that Moses and God through him saw fit to give the people of Israel, and consequently us, specific time details in the Bible so that we can know when key events took place in the history of the earth. And we see that Babel took place around 2,240 B.C. Now, even though this event is clearly ancient, memories of Babel are still evident all over the world, even outside of the scriptures. Well, first of all, there's the tower. If indeed the Tower of Babel was ziggurat-shaped, or shaped like a step pyramid, it's intriguing that we see similar structures all over the world. These pictures here... uh, top left corner and the top right corner, they are of step pyramids in Mexico. That middle picture is, the top middle is the step period in Egypt, Pyramid of Djoser. And this bottom picture is actually from Indonesia. Similar looking structures. And many of these, and there are more besides these, many of these, if not all of these, they were used in the same way as the ziggurats of Babylon. They were religious structures. We're all about meeting with or communicating with the gods. Why is this? Now you might say, well, maybe the structure was just easier to build, and that's why everybody ended up using it. Eh, it could be. Maybe there's something to that. But still, 
The first people groups on earth would have carried with them the memories of the event at Babel. So such similar tower, such similar tower structures are not surprising. And whatever was motivating the people at Babel to build those towers, to build that tower, was very similar, likely, to what's motivating the people to build these towers. Moreover, like the Great Flood, we also find legends around the world involving the splitting of one original language into many, and therefore the people groups separating. Listen to a few of these. The Kiche people of Guatemala, they told of a time when the tribes multiplied and left their old homes for a place called Tulan. Here, the language changed, and the people sought new homes in various parts of the world as a result of not being able to understand each other. Then, there's this legend. The Makir tribe in northeastern India tells of the descendants of Ram who were strong men and were growing dissatisfied with earth and aspired to conquer heaven. They began to build a tower. This is from a translation of one of their legends. Quote, Higher and higher rose the building till at last the gods and demons feared lest these giants should become masters of heaven as they already were of earth. So they confounded their speech and scattered them to the four corners of the world. Hence arose all the various tongues of mankind. Unquote. One more. The Polynesians on the islands of Howe said that Rata and his three sons survived a great flood. Then, quote, they made an attempt to erect a building by which they could reach the sky and see the creator god, Vatea. But the god in anger chased the builders away, broke down the building, and changed their language so that they spoke diverse tongues, unquote. Now, a skeptic will hear those descriptions and say, oh, well, that's evidence that the Bible's untrue. It's just a myth, because look, it borrowed from all these other myths. That's according to his presupposition. But we know that the Bible is true. God has made that clear to us. We recognize reality in the scriptures. We know that Babel actually happened. And so we would expect its memory to be taken to various cultures. And this is precisely what we see in these different legends. These people had, been, they had received the story of Babel, the account of Babel, and it continued to survive in their legends. If you'd like to hear more about these or want more details about the sources, you can look at the article, Tongue Twisting Tales, at answersingenesis.org. Because we see that what the Bible declares is actually evident in what we see in the world. So we've seen today that what happened about 4,200 years ago affected us all. Because of man's prideful rebellion at Babel, we have many different languages and people groups today. There are a number of application questions in the, in the workbooks in relation to this, but we've already touched on a number of those, and I just want to focus on one of those questions. And we'll add like a sub-question to it. If you have your workbooks, you can look at question three. I'll also post the question up here in the slide. What attributes of God does the judgment of the people by confusing their language demonstrate? What's one? Yes, Steve? Totally, right? His sovereignty, total control, total power. By a command, he sends the rebels of earth into chaos. And in one instant, he totally reprograms each person's brain to speak and understand a new language. That's God's power. That's his sovereignty. What else? Yes, Rob. That's right. God had to act. He couldn't just say, oh, they're being prideful, whatever. No, God's glory was being stolen, and he will always give himself what he's due. He is a jealous God, jealous for what he rightly deserves. We do see that. What else? Along those same lines, we see God's holiness and justice. He's too good to not judge sin. He must judge sinful pride, and he did so in a way that greatly humbled man. What else do we see? Is it, 
Yeah, we also see his mercy, right? How do we see his mercy? What? Exactly, exactly. Especially because this is only 100, 100 or so years after the flood. That is extreme arrogance and um, ingratitude from the people of the earth. God could have said, all right, fine, I'll wipe you out too. But God chose to be patient. And he certainly was going to also be faithful. He promised that he would not send another flood. He just said, all right, round two, another flood. But he said, no, I promised. I promised that I would not destroy the earth again with a flood. God showed himself faithful, even against flagrant disobedience, and he showed himself compassionate. He chose not to destroy man. He chose only to judge him with a curse. But actually, the judgment was, in some ways, a blessing. It was merciful. God limited man's ability to rebel by inhibiting his unity. He says, I will not allow you to be totally united in rebellion against me because I will split you apart in your languages. As a result of that, think about this. In light of what we see in this account, would it be good for our world if we became totally united? There were one language, one culture, one government, one church, etc.? No, it would be terrible. Why? Say that again. That's right. People would unite in our fallen world in rebellion against God. Sin would be, even, would be given even more reign if the earth were totally united. And perhaps you're already thinking this in your brain. It's not surprising that at the end of our world, this is exactly what we see. We see mankind united under the Antichrist and Satan in rebellion against God? Hold that question. Hold that thought. But there's something also really interesting related to that. Because it's not that God is simply against man's unity. Because there's another question that we should ask. How does life in Christ interact with the curse of Babel? Yeah, Francisco. right. Yeah, it's exactly. It's a totally different kind of unity, but it is unity, and I think an even greater unity. In Christ, we do have unity, and we do have great power through that unity. Consider that the church, what the church is supposed to be when it conforms to God's design. Each member, though differing from one another, excelling in various areas, gifted in various ways, yet devoted to one goal, glorifying God in the gospel advancing the gospel, expanding God's kingdom. So really, the power of man, the united, rebellious power of man on display at Babel is just an evil mutation of what man was always supposed to be. Israel was supposed to be a united power for the glory of God and the gospel. And the church is supposed to be a united force for the glory of God and the gospel. We are to be as united, rather more united than the people of Babel, because our unity does not come from simply a shared language or culture, or as Francisco was saying, the shared goal of self-sufficiency or self-glorification. Our unity actually transcends language and culture. And it's based off of the shared bond of communion in Christ. Our power is not based off of human intelligence or creativity, but on God's supreme wisdom and his life-giving Holy Spirit. So we ought to ask ourselves, are we united with our brothers and sisters in the goal of the gospel? Are you united with the other people in this church? Are each of you using the skills and gifts that God gave you together with your brothers and sisters for the goal that God gave us? Because it's the only reason that we're still here on earth. As we said, God is not against man's unity. He is against its unity when it is against Christ. God demands unity from us. Unity in Christ, each part working together for the advancement of the whole through the gospel. So, in closing, our history is tragic, Babel included. But Christ is wondrous. He does indeed make all things new. Even the curse of Babel is reversed wondrously in Christ. Next week, we'll take a closer look at where the different people groups went, what accounts for their, different, or their physical differences, 
and why we are really all just one race, not many races. We'll get to our new memory verse in a second, but Steve, you had something you want to yeah, say? I, mean, just, I was thinking of the verse in Acts 17, 27, where it says, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries for their habitation, <clears throat> that they would seek God, and perhaps they might grope for him and, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Yeah. Uh, I think of that verse, but then I also think, too, of um, you know, Acts, um, the day of Pentecost, when people spoke in tongues. You know, there was a kind of a reversal of Babel, but for the spreading of the gospel. Right. And, you know, and they were able to then, you know, God determines in his sovereignty the, the um, spreading out and the, the distinct boundaries of all the nations. Hmm. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, the gospel is what unites all the differences. You know, it's the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Savior, hmm. you know, God is appointed over all things. Yeah. Those are some great verses that you just mentioned. Actually, the, the section in Acts is going to be our new memory verse. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the God's sovereignty over splitting and deciding the specific boundaries of each people group, each nation. And it says, even in that passage, why did he do it? So that they might reach out to him, that they might grope for him and be found by him. That, that, yeah, they would, they would come to know him. So even the, the splitting has the gospel in mind. And then as you connect it to the day of Pentecost, we see specifically almost a direct reversal of Babel, where all languages understand the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And you know the refrain that we see many times in the, in the end of the New Testament, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be brought to bow down before Jesus Christ. He will save some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Any other questions or comments? Go ahead, uh, Bill. Actually, we'll start with you. Yes, I think so. So your question in Revelation 17 refers to, symbolically refers to Babylon as the as the harlot, the mother of all harlotries. Is that a reference to Babel? I think there's a there's good reason to say that it is because that is the um, it is the the first united rebellion against God, and um, all other rebellions since have just been versions of that. And so I think it's uh, it's fitting that Revelation will, when it speaks of even future rebellion, is by mentioning Babylon. Yes, Francisco. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, and we don't have a lot of time to answer it, but I will try and give a response. But just repeat your thought. What about the idea that God was merely accommodating or contextualizing the things that many people were saying at that time, that there was this flood or that there was this event at Babel where all the languages split? It didn't really happen, but God just kind of went along with it because he wanted to present it his, himself to them, and so we kind of used what they already knew, what they already understood, even if it wasn't true. Well, I think the the basic reason why that cannot be is that it makes God a deceiver. I mean, if you're going to accommodate false understandings but still refer to them as being true, then you're, you're actually t- telling lies. And even if you're using it for a good purpose, you are, you are actually being unfaithful to the character of God. God will be being unfaithful to himself. There's more that we can say about that, but certainly God is not a contextualizer in that sense at all. He's not going to accommodate false thinking for the sake of telling us something true. Now he's going to just tell us truth. He can't not tell us truth. The one who does speak lies is, of course, Satan. That's his language. We're out of time for today. Let's look at our memory verse. Steve actually made reference to it. This is our next, this is our memory verse for the second half of the quarter. Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. 
That's another good New Testament verse for the New Testament confirming the historicity of the Old Testament. And specifically here, it's the idea that all people groups come from one set of parents. That we're all one race, one blood. We didn't arrive in various, from, as a result of various evolutions. We all came from one set of parents. So let's read this together, and we'll finish Sunday school by doing that. Acts 17, 26 to 27. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let's pray now. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you actually do unite all the peoples in yourself. That is the way we've always been meant, God. And not simply in belief or in celebration of you, but in service. Lord, the gospel must be proclaimed. You have given that ministry to us, and you've meant for it to be accomplished, Lord, through the different workings of your members, all fitting together for one purpose. So God, I pray that we would would fulfill what you have marked out for us, that your spirit would do it in us, God, And, God, I pray that you would deliver us from the great sin of pride that says, I'm not getting what I deserve. There's something in me that God is just not providing for. God, you are always good. Lord, we cannot be self-sufficient. You give every good gift, even when they're not the things that our flesh, or they're not the things that we crave, because you're too good. And we thank you for being that kind of a God. In Jesus' name, amen.